Welcome to Parallel Worlds, audio issue 1, September 2019. Word for word, the articles that appear in this month's Parallel Worlds magazine. Editorial Why read this magazine? Hopefully, for the same reasons we've written it. For a love of the realms of the imagination. If, like us you're captivated by what humanity could be in its far future, or what life might be like elsewhere in the universe. If, like us, you're fed up by how dull real life often proves to be. If, like us, the words based on a true story underneath the title of a book or a film make you roll your eyes and scroll on. Why isn't Umama an alien spaceship? Why does Mars have to be a dead, lifeless rock? Why don't dragons exist? Why isn't there any magic in the world? Aside from dinosaurs and black holes, reality is often depressingly predictable. We feel this keenly. We inhabit the world of otherware. Fantastic constructions that don't settle for this is it, but ask what could be. Fleshed-out fantasy and science fiction worlds that we long to escape into through books, tabletop games, video games and other media. And we don't think we're alone. Something else is at work here. Something that's made Games Workshop the darling of the stock markets, made Stranger Things a runaway hit for Netflix and brought a renaissance in role-playing and board games. And not just in popular media. States and private enterprise seem to be asking, what if... Again, after half a century hiatus, with NASA planning to build a moon base and visit Mars and SpaceX seeking to make humanity a multi-planetary species. We catch the scent of all this on the wind and we're excited. If you've read this far, you probably are too. This is issue one of Parallel Worlds. Come with us on a fantastic journey. Interview, Isaac Childress. Every month, Parallel Worlds will feature an interview with an amazing content creator or personality working in science fiction, fantasy, or horror. This month, we spoke to Isaac Childress, head of Cephalofair Games and maker of Gloomhaven, the massive and amazing board game that started life as a crowdfunding project. We chatted to him about his career, upcoming projects, inspirations, and most famous creation. Gloomhaven is a deep and lore-rich game, which some people have compared to tabletop role-playing games. Gloomhaven was definitely heavily inspired by role-playing games, Isaac told us. However, he decided to stick to the board game format rather than making it as a role-playing game. I guess the idea was that I wanted to share my creation with as large an audience as possible, and I had already had success publishing board games, so I went with that, he said. He has always been more interested in the mechanical side of role-playing games. Though he enjoys role-playing, it's not his focus. This approach of using learnings from elsewhere extends to the mechanics of Gloomhaven as well. For example, the multi-use cards. Players perform a move action and an attack action, but each action is different, so doing something now may prevent them from doing what they want to do later. They're not a new concept or anything, it just hadn't really been used well in the tactical dungeon crawl genre, explained Isaac. 
He suggests that multi-use cards are the perfect way to add a rewarding level of decision-making to the game. Isaac loves world-building, and comes up with his own fantasy world settings whenever he runs Dungeons & Dragons games, so coming up with his own fantasy races for Gloomhaven just made sense. In his words, why let J.R.R. Tolkien have all the fun? His favourite of the races is the Aesthers, because their backstory is so rich, tragic, and mysterious. I just really like the idea of these ageless beings that got stuck in the space between planes, he said. The inspirations for the Gloomhaven world have some surprising sources. Isaac is a big fan of Patrick Rothfuss' King Killer Chronicles. It is a meticulously crafted world, and it inspired me to take my own world building seriously, he explained. He also loves the Marvel Cinematic Universe, which inspired him to create cinematic powers for his own characters. But Gloomhaven owes its existence to more than just inspiring fictional universes. He feels that there is a lot of repetition in the board game market, which troubles him, and partly led him to try to incorporate different concepts into his own games. Most of them aren't doing anything new, he explained. In some sense, Gloomhaven was the rejection of a reliance on dice and randomness in the tactical combat genre. He is intent on continuing to create games that provide players with new experiences, not derivative ones. Gloomhaven has been a brilliant success, and he is very happy with where it is now. However, he managed nearly everything on his own until recently, when he hired someone to help with operations and marketing. If he were to do it all again, he would have hired that person sooner. That has been a huge boon for me, he said. Founders of Gloomhaven is another board game set in the Gloomhaven universe. It's a pretty niche Eurogame product, Isaac explained, and definitely has a more niche audience than a dungeon crawler like Gloomhaven. That said, Founders absolutely smashed its funding goals. I suspect that was due to the strength of the Gloomhaven brand, he commented. Isaac is currently working on both an expansion for Gloomhaven, as well as new projects outside that universe. One of these is a remake of Restoration Games' Dark Tower, which he is co-designing with Rob Davio. It has been a great experience, he said. Gloomhaven seems to have a place very close to his heart, though. It's my outlet for creativity, which is very important to me, he explained. If I had a copy of Gloomhaven with me, I could continue to create adventures forever. However, Gaia Project is his all-time number one game, partly due to its huge amount of replayability. I don't think I'd ever get tired of it, he told us. Another exciting development for Gloomhaven is the release of a PC game version. He explained, A lot of the overall feel and pacing of Gloomhaven was inspired by video games like Elder Scrolls, Diablo and Darkest Dungeon. It feels like a video game in a lot of ways, so it made sense to port it into a video game to share it with a wider audience. Though he loves those games, he has had less and less time to play them. I've been sinking my teeth more into shorter roguelike games, like The Binding of Isaac and Slay the Spire, he said. He has dabbled with the idea of making his own too, I've always wanted to revisit the first-person turn-based role-playing game genre, like Shining in the Darkness or Shining the Holy Ark. He tried to make a game like that in Flash once, with limited success. I am not very good at programming, and it was Flash so it didn't go anywhere, he said. These days, he doesn't get much time for reading, but found the time to finish Pedido Street Station by China Meville earlier this year. It had some pretty great world-building, but the story was a little disappointing, he remembered. When it comes to films, he names Brazil as his favourite, followed by, in no particular order, Mad Max Fury Road, Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind, and The Big Lebowski. Choosing is hard, he admitted. 
Isaac is a physicist by training, but went into board game design before taking a job in the field. His thesis was about the effects of radiation on graphene and topological insulators. However, he doesn't miss that world at all. Gloomhaven and founders of Gloomhaven are available from local gaming shops and online. The PC version of Gloomhaven was released in July on Steam and is available now. Review Tiny Epic Mechs Tiny Epic Mechs is the latest game in the Tiny Epic series to be fulfilled from its Kickstarter and head out to retail. If you're unfamiliar, Gamelin's Tiny Epic games pack away into a box about the size of three DVD cases stacked together. Yet the modular components often fill a table and offer medium-length, fairly weighty play experiences. Every game in the series is a completely different theme and playstyle. Although, a bit like the Final Fantasy series, there is a common DNA throughout many of the titles. Tiny Epic Mechs is a 1-4 to four player arena combat game. Players score in two ways. The television audience awards points for various elements of combat, such as damage dealt, initiating a duel and winning a duel. The other, much more impactful way of scoring is by controlling spaces of varying value around the arena at the end of three scoring rounds. Four actions are programmed at the start of each round using direction cards with unique actions, such as collect resources or buy weapons. Players take it in turns to execute their program one action at a time. If two units meet on a space, they duel until one is forced to retreat, either because they have expended all available weaponry or have suffered a knockout. Tiny Epic Mechs looks great on the table. The arena is colourful and futuristically sharp, with a Tron vibe. The miniatures have incredible table presence, and this is the latest Tiny Epic game to feature meeples, custom playing pieces in the shape of a figure which has slots to carry plastic items, mainly weapons. Tiny Epic Mechs goes one further, and now meeples can now be placed inside a power suit, providing additional hit points and mounts for advanced weapons. Or the Mighty Mech, a towering robot which provides bonus points and a kind of King of the Hill style scoring opportunity. At first, Mechs seems like an odd game. Pitched as a game of arena combat, duels occur randomly, and in the early stages of the game, it is common for the victor and loser to score the same points. The loser, having been forced to retreat and therefore having negated their program moves, now enters an ad hoc mode, in which they can play whatever card they like on their turn. Similarly, while an impressive attack scores for each point of damage inflicted, finally knocking out an opponent only scores one point. Knocked out players either retreat or respawn, hugely diminishing the pain of losing a duel. The biggest points for controlling spaces is using an array of turrets and mines, which can be placed by the player. Having control of spaces using these items provides a huge score between rounds, and a large element of the game is having enough hit points to wade into these booby-trapped spaces. Trigger the trap and remove the controlling piece to deny the other players their score. This is where Tiny Epic Mechs reveals its true nature. While presented as a combat game, it's actually a tactical game of area control. It is also a game of careful timing, with score taking place only at the end of every other round, so planning is required. Being totally honest, Tiny Epic Mechs isn't a game which impresses greatly from a first play. The figures are wonderful, and the first game is largely carried by the job of kitting out your little plastic robot with a multitude of deadly-looking weapons. If anything, the initial feeling is that continually swapping your pilot between the different suits is a bit of a faff. However, take on board the game's theme, and Mechs truly shines. It wants to simulate a futuristic sport, and has done so brilliantly. After your first few games, you learn to read the arena, and guess which spaces each gladiator will try to control. This introduces bluff and risk, potentially allowing a player to unleash a powerful ambush. 
The duels themselves have a three-way paper-scissor-stone relationship of basic attacks versus powerful counters, and sizing up an opponent's loadout can lead to some explosive battles. Like any sport, it is at its best when placed between two practised experts, so I have no qualms at all of recommending this game if you are able to play with a semi-regular crowd. Mechs is primarily a two-to-four player game, with the arena scaling well for different player counts. However, as with other Gamelin titles, there is a solo mode included. This simulates a three-player setup with two AI robots singling out the lone human player, controlled via random cards from the programming deck. As a solo experience, it works pretty well, and can be a challenge to beat, but it's not as satisfying a solo game as many of Gamelin's titles. I wouldn't recommend it to anybody as a purely solo purchase, but it is a fun bonus if you're in the mood. Many argue that Tiny Epic Mechs isn't as deep an arena battling experience as others, but where I think it scores highly is in its simplicity, portability and value for money. This is a £20 game in a small box which can be thrown in a bag as a just-in-case option, which compares to large box experiences costing well over £40, rather than, say, One Night Ultimate Werewolf or Coup. As such, and for its elegance, ease to learn, lovely toys and convenient length, Tiny Epic Mechs definitely punches above its weight, probably using a warhammer or a railgun. Box Full of Knives Why Dungeons and Dragons Needs to Step Away from Its Wargaming Roots Every tabletop role-playing game is a system, composed of mechanics designed around a certain story that the system wants to emulate. They're toolboxes. And as Adam Kobel stated in a Twitter thread a year ago, the original role-playing game Dungeons & Dragons, known as D&D, is a box full of knives. The mechanics tell you how to fight things and take their stuff in great detail, and everything else is left in broad strokes and not supported by the mechanics. This article may look like yet another hit piece on the 5th edition of D&D, but that accusation would only be half correct. A proper critique of the system as a whole requires us to go way back and look at where it all began. Some of you reading this might have been there. I was born in 1997. I was absolutely not there. I've grown up during what could be called the golden age of role-playing games. The internet connects and facilitates games in a way previous generations didn't think possible and the number of games that step away from D&D and become their own toolboxes continues to expand. I'd comfortably put the number of tabletop role-playing gamers who've only ever played D&D at around 70% of all players. This is in part due to the brand popularity. Some people call all role-playing games D&D. It's that recognisable. But there's a problem with this. Rather than being a gateway to the hobby and encouraging people to branch out and explore new systems, every edition of D&D since the third has been a sort of cul-de-sac that people sit in, never content to venture out and try something new. Now, of course, this is just a game we're talking about here. Most of the time, people just want to sit around a table, hit some monsters, make some dumb jokes and switch off their brains. D&D provides that in spades, especially 5th edition. But that's just it. It's a game, not a story, and not an adventure. And I have more than enough video games to scratch that itch. 
When I sit down to run or play a tabletop role-playing game, I want a damn adventure. I want to feel like a story is unfolding around me as I explore fantastic worlds. I don't want to win a plus one sword or experience points, but experience the simple joy of seeing what's around the next corner. Maybe it'll be an intrigue game, and my character will scheme their way to the top of the pile. Maybe we'll be robbing dungeons like banks, in and out as fast as possible, no witnesses. A story, not a game. This is the part of the conversation where someone's likely to say, but the system doesn't matter if your game master and group are on the same page, or you can just hack and homebrew the system to do what you want. And sure, you can do that. Some of the best storytelling and role-playing experiences can come from a game where both the game master and the group dip into books for what they need and work out the rest for themselves. But in a commercial environment, where there are many choices of different RPGs, why would a group use a system that doesn't accommodate their playstyle? For those who really want detail... There are games like Pathfinder or Rollmaster, which offer a detailed simulationist approach. You absolutely know that's what you're getting with these systems. Fifth edition seems to be trying to be in the middle ground between story and game. But there's a danger in being there, as it can be frustrating for storytellers, gamers and simulationists alike. There's no denying that fifth edition is incredibly popular. It's one of the industry's biggest success stories of modern times. However, people seem petrified to step outside 5th edition's cul-de-sac and spend a bit of time learning. There are a wealth of systems with fewer rules than 5th edition, but more tools to create amazing stories and adventures. Apart from the aforementioned Pathfinder and Rollmaster, games like Basic Fantasy, available online for free from basicfantasy.org, is an amazing resource. The generic Universal Role-Playing System, or GURPS, from Steve Jackson Games, is still going, with a light rules system and tons of optional resources for players and game masters. Less rules, more tools. One of the best rules light offerings around at the moment is Into the Odd by Chris McDowell. Into the Odd, like 5th edition, is about killing things and taking their gold. Into the Odd lays out the tools for this in about three pages. It's slick and exciting and rather weird. Characters often die, but those who survive feel an incredible sense of triumph. And as the permanent games master of many playing groups, having a light toolbox of a system that I can add bits to on the fly is just perfect. It becomes my own the more I play around with it. Could 5th edition give me a great adventure or story? Sure. With the right games master, and players, and plotline, and, and, and. If you want to feel like you're on an actual adventure, you have to work around 5th edition, because you get nothing but knives. Spellcasters can take cantrips that do stupid amounts of damage, and every spell is tailored to solve a huge number of problems, but most of those are combat-based. Also, the legacy of the level system is still a problem that won't go away. Beyond level 10, your average party can trivialise most threats and encounters, dominate non-player characters to do what they want, and rain hellfire upon the land. They're not underdogs, 
and the story isn't compelling. With previous editions, the game balanced this by making you really weak and inexperienced at the start, but players didn't want to do the hard yards to get to the sweet spot, levels 5 to 9, so the starting characters were powered up a bit as the game went on. What's left is a bit like a summer blockbuster, with a massive budget and cool special effects. It's fun enough in small doses, but can't we have something a bit more nuanced and thrilling? Of course, going too far in the opposite direction won't help either. Ars Magica is a game where you can play a wizard, spend several years in a tower working on a spell, and then get eaten by a wolf when your servants fail to protect you on a routine excursion. It might not sound it, but that game was pretty damn fun, and all randomly assigned too. Which brings me to my next point. Renowned old-school role-playing blog The Alexandrian refers to random tables as low-tech procedural content generators, which is absolutely true. The best games I've played haven't been strings of narrative tied to big combat set pieces that take hours to resolve. They've been glorious, weird sandboxes where player agency rules the day and the game master's sacred duty is to facilitate the players while they make the plot happen, not the other way round. And it's really, really hard to build and facilitate if your toolbox is full of nothing but lots of different knives. Perhaps there's an excuse for this in video games or other platforms, where the method of play is hardwired and expectations are advertised in the screenshots, but an RPG, where imagination is supposed to be at the heart of the experience? We need more forks, or even a paintbrush or two. Rules that help players interact with the world in different ways are essential. 5th edition also has a problem commonly referred to as the long rest economy. The players can take a long rest to heal up completely and be ready to fight. Common sense dictates that this should be something done between adventures as a form of downtime. Unfortunately, the rules of 5th edition don't mandate that, and I've seen many game masters have the threat and challenge sucked right out of their session when the players take a long rest in a dungeon. But surely they can apply common sense. The system doesn't need to tell them, right? I run into this argument a lot, and it holds some merit. But 5th edition is the first tabletop role-playing game system a lot of people play, and they often take the book as complete gospel that shouldn't be changed, because change is scary and rules are rules. Many players arrive at role-playing from board games and the like, which don't tell you that you can chuck out a rule or two in the interests of fun and the mechanics of 5th edition are woven together in ways which make it really hard to tinker and change things. The notion of balance, which in my mind runs counter to any form of adventure, stymies innovation. Balance belongs in games. Role-playing games are indeed games, as the name suggests, but the stories they aim to create are not just games and not just stories, they're adventures. And adventures are never balanced, because it would render them terribly boring. The heroes should start as underdogs, trying to claw their way to some kind of power, so that they can earn the right to be big damn heroes. Bilbo Baggins didn't start out as a hero or a slayer of monsters. In fact, he didn't go home as one either. He feels like more of a person than any tiefling warlock or Janassi cleric, because he's always the underdog, 
getting by on his wits and the aid of his friends, which is what any adventure should focus on. A final thought. If you're completely new to role-playing games, 5th edition will guarantee you have people to play with. You'll have fun. But when you start to look deeper and seek different tabletop experiences, put down the box of knives and find something with tools that suit you. Because at their hearts, tabletop role-playing games are the most personal experience you can have while still playing a game. Intermediate Frustration The New Call of Cthulhu Starter Set The seminal role-playing game of cosmic horrors and plucky investigators has been terrifying and amusing players for years. With the arrival of a new starter set, it seemed prudent to round up a few players at this year's LaveCon and play it till the wheels fell off. The first thing worth commenting on is the cover art. In an attempt to make the game more accessible for new players, the publisher seems to have gone with cartoon imagery, a sort of Scooby-Doo aesthetic, a group of misfits looking terrified outside a mansion with all the glowing green bits you'd expect. There's nothing wrong with the cover on a technical level, but tonally it doesn't do the game justice. Contrast it with the art for the Keeper's screen, with the investigators tiny and frail in the light of their lanterns as the cliffs tower overhead, totally different in terms of aesthetic. I'm a pulp man through and through, I'll admit, except for Call of Cthulhu, where I try and aim for a gritty noir feel cut through with slashes of gruesome horror. Tonally, the starter set isn't this at all. A further disappointment was the pre-generated characters. They do, admittedly, represent a nice range of potential investigators in the 1920s, and all seem to be realistically portrayed, but not Nevada Jones. Yeah, they made the reference. Azathoth helped me. I know it's supposed to be accessible, and I suppose pop culture references help, but the real frustration I have is the inconsistency. Why make only one pre-gen character a thinly veiled reference and the rest perfectly original? It's easy to imagine the Nevada player hogging the spotlight, a common problem with new role-playing game groups. If the other characters are the sort of regular investigator fodder, how could they fill the spotlight better than the famous whip-toting professor with a slight name tweak? So the tone of the pregens feels confused and the box art fails to inspire. Onto the materials within. I am not a prep-heavy game master. I think that trying to predict everything the players do is a waste of time, and it's much better and more time-effective to sketch a situation and let the players make the plot. If I get down more than 10 bullet points for a location, I've done something wrong. Unfortunately, the adventure booklet takes a very different approach to my usual style. The information for each case is presented in thick, indigestible paragraphs that demand close attention, lest the would-be game master miss a sentence that holds some vital information. For a beginner, this is obtuse. And even with some experience, I struggled to pass the information into usable chunks. The writing itself is of good quality, and would provide an enjoyable read in other circumstances. Unfortunately, all five of the cases in the starter set proved to be too verbose. Actually opening the box and running the system for the first time would be a nightmare for new game masters and players. As a game master with some experience, I found myself having to pull all the most relevant pieces of information from the cases and turn them into a sort of cheat sheet for running the game. Surely the casebook itself should fulfil this purpose. To sum up, the cases occupy a strange place on the spectrum. A nightmare for new game masters and a chore for experienced ones, their target audience is unclear. It seems that the sweet spot for prep materials would be game masters of intermediate experience, but surely at that point they'd want to write their own content. 
I struggle to recommend the starter set based on the cases alone, and I feel that they present an obstacle to satisfying play. One thing the quick start doesn't lack is handouts. Glossy maps, letters for the pre-made adventures, there's enough to fill a tabletop. But it feels soulless. All of the maps, such as the Arkham one, seem to have been made digitally, with absolutely no consideration being given to the aesthetics of the time. Buildings are airbrushed brown blocks, everything feels like it was done in an older version of Photoshop, it's dreary and unlikely to catch the eye of new players. Maps from the Roaring Twenties and earlier should be cross-touched, archaic and characterful. There should be scribbled notes in the margins and strange symbols peeking from hidden corners. There should be character. Unfortunately, the quick start maps hold none at all. My game with the starter set was unfortunately cut short, but I was fortunate enough to get three players at different ends of the role-playing spectrum. One had been playing Call of Cthulhu for nigh on 30 years, another was a relative newbie but had played tabletop role-playing games before, and the third had no experience whatsoever. After a bit of prep and questions to gauge their opinions on the box itself, we began the session. The mechanics are absolutely sound, and seem to follow the same general principles as previous editions. Roll two ten-sided dice to perform basic skill checks, deduct sanity when encountering the mythos, and so on. The pre-made adventure did a good job of setting the tense, misshrouded tone of Arkham and surrounds, but I feel this came more from the good group chemistry than any spectacular writing within the module itself. Another strange design choice struck me as we went through the adventure. The box cover, as discussed, has an almost comedic tone, but none of the featured adventures veer very far from the classic cosmic terror of the original stories. This pleased me as a returning Call of Cthulhu player and keeper, but the newbies will surely struggle with the subversion of their expectations. The pendulum swing of tone and style is enough to throw off any beginner game master, and I'd advise anyone buying the product to either take elements from the pre-made adventures to make their own, or take judicious notes in advance. For this game master, and the players who tried it with at least, the starter set fails to get the game rolling from the moment the box is opened. Mini of the Month Catharlus the Elf I have come here to this dark underground place to oppose the evil that lurks here. My woodland home is far away. The land has a rhythm, a balance, that must be preserved. As elves of the forest, our part in that balance is to be caretakers and guardians for all life that grows amidst the bush and scrub. Animals live and die. They are hunted and hunters, predators and prey. That is part of the way of things. Our place is not to intervene. But the elders have sensed an evil here, lurking in the depths of the world. They have sent me and my hunter-kin brethren to oppose it. Two days ago we descended into the darkness of this subterranean world. These passages are man-wrought. Part of a great fortification built upon this land many years ago to subjugate it. In those ancient days we mustered our strength and fought the humans, until they were forced to abandon their designs. Their stone keep was left as a monument to folly, until the tunnels beneath it were taken by corruption. I do not know what lives here, but it is a blight upon all things living above. Root and branch have sickened since this land became afflicted. We hunters must come here and root out the evil, so the sickness can be cured. We left our people two days ago, 
journeying by day and night by ways known only to us. There are doorways and magic passages made by our kind long ago before humans came to this world. We spoke with the trees and with the wind, obtaining their aid in our quest. Five of us entered this decaying stone kingdom. At first, all was quiet, and we walked together through ruins, picking our way over rockfalls and down rough-hewn stairs into the bones of the world. Within hours, daylight became a mere memory to us. The darkness became everything, seeping into our blood and our bones. When flames sprang from the darkness and orcs appeared, we were caught by surprise. Feral faces with bloodshot eyes surged towards me, their rusted blades hacking and slashing in the narrow alleyways, seeking to maim and kill me and my companions, leaving us to die in the gloom, far from sunlight and the green warmth of home. The fighting was brief and vicious. With knife and spear, I drove them from me, but lost touch with my kin. The flickering firelight and the echoes and screams of war disappeared into the tunnels until the silence fell once more. I was left alone in silence and shadow. Now I journey onwards into the deeper dark. I shall try to find my hunter brethren, but if they are lost, then I must continue. The evil that lives beneath our woodland realm must be opposed. Remember me if I am lost. For all brave deeds should become memories in story and in song. A Grenadier cast from the late 1980s and early 1990s, this lead figure came as part of a group of four ordered from eBay back in 2015 or 2016. I've always been a fan of the Grenadier castings from that period, and despite their age, this little group of elves really holds up well alongside modern plastics, white metal and resin. The moulds were eventually bought by Mirliton, and you can still purchase some of the old figures as new from them. The elves of this group are part of my tabletop role-playing games collection rather than being used as part of an army. This means Kethalus gets displayed in a woodland scene or goes in the adventurer's box, just in case someone wants to play an elf in a fantasy role-playing game campaign. If you're looking for good rare models, doing a search on eBay for Grenadier miniatures always means you'll find a rare treat. H.P. Lovecraft, 100 Years On A century after publication, the works of H.P. Lovecraft continue to influence popular media. His were tales that disturbed the mind and enthralled the senses. However, in his time, he was a virtual nobody. He is neither as influential nor as well-known as literary goliaths like J.R.R. Tolkien or his idol Edgar Allan Poe. Yet, from his imagination was birthed an entirely new subgenre, the cosmic horror story. Lovecraft was fanatically loyal to his hometown of Providence, Rhode Island. He liked cats. He had a happy childhood and many friends by correspondence well into adulthood. He was an atheist, but adored the gods of ancient Egypt and Greece so much that he prayed to them as a boy. He was a complicated man and by no means an entirely positive figure. He was extremely anti-Semitic, so much so that his wife left him, and he expressed fondness for Adolf Hitler during his lifetime before he died in 1937. He was racist, even composing several stories in which the horror was interracial breeding. His 
of the time thinking included an obsession with lineage and nobility. A number of his stories included the notion that family bloodlines could suffer generational curses, and many promoted the themes of fear of difference and change. Nonetheless, Lovecraft's true legacy lies not in his narrow-mindedness, but in his ability to blow the mind entirely. He drew inspiration from night terrors and the state of consciousness between sleep and waking. He had many influences in his life that steered him towards the bizarre and horrific, his father's insanity and death due to syphilis, the works of Edgar Allan Poe, and humankind's recent, at the time, discoveries of the scale and complexity of the universe. Human understanding of the cosmos expanded at a breathtaking rate during his lifetime, but for all that these scientific discoveries increased our knowledge about the nature of reality, they invariably led to more questions than answers. Breaking from many science fiction writers and publishers of the time, Lovecraft rejected the modern notions of progress and technological advancement in his fiction. He was more comfortable with the weird, the way in which a story can destabilise the reader's experience by undermining the narrator's assumptions, something Poe did before him. Lovecraft's writings spoke to the nihilist notion that human beings are ignorant, insignificant specks adrift in the universe, no more able to understand the nature of reality than insects. Many today can identify with his philosophy of so-called cosmic indifference. Despite all this, Lovecraft was not so different from a typical nerd today. He was an amateur astronomer. He became interested in stories as a child, enthralled by the gothic horror tales his grandfather shared with him. He read ravenously, preferring books to people. His non-fiction work, Supernatural Horror and Literature, references a vast array of fictional works, demonstrating his knowledge of the field at the time. Lovecraft chose to write in a thick British style, which was already considered out of date at that time. This was something he was inspired to do by Edgar Allan Poe, and, like Poe, he included various archaic forms of language in his work. He didn't think his own stories were particularly worth publishing, at least at first. Arguably, of all of Lovecraft's short stories, his most influential and well-known is The Call of Cthulhu. It is the only story he ever wrote centred about the eponymous Cthulhu, which would go on to be the focus of one of the greatest collections of modern folklore, the Cthulhu Mythos. The story, originally published in the pulp magazine Weird Tales, is framed as a manuscript discovered after the death of a man named Francis Whalen Thurston. It contains three stories within a story, each describing escalating narratives throughout a fictional history, describing the worship and near escape of the long-lived eldritch abomination. Readers who have not read the story are encouraged to do so. It's a fascinating experience and a premier example of Lovecraft's work. A creature beyond human understanding, capable of impossible things, is discovered, possibly worshipped, and drives witnesses to utter madness. In the story, Cthulhu has been imprisoned for vigintillions of years, a vigintillion being ten with 63 zeros after it. This sort of mind-bending detail is typical of Lovecraft. The story includes horrifying dreams and cults seeking to bring back ancient horrors, both of which have become common fantasy tropes. At the time, Lovecraft thought it was a middling story, and Weird Tales didn't want to publish it when he first submitted it. Since its publication, however, it has acquired incredible renown. In addition to being remade as films, comic books and radio plays, in 2018 it was published as a video game. The Call of Cthulhu tabletop role-playing game released its 7th edition in 2014 and has been featured in popular shows such as Critical Role. During his life, Lovecraft was generous with his fictional world. He invited other writers to work within his mythos, labelled thereafter the Cthulhu mythos.
The first group included Clark Ashton Smith, Robert E. Howard, Robert Block, Frank Belknap Long, Henry Kuttner, and others, and this period of development was later called the first stage. After Lovecraft's death due to cancer of the small intestine, the Cthulhu mythos was expanded further in the second stage, guided by his friend and publisher, August Derleth, who first coined the term Elder Gods. Since Derleth, many writers of Lovecraftian horror have taken inspiration from the mythos. After some dispute between Derleth and R.H. Barlow, the writer Lovecraft left as executor of his work, copyright of his work is now public domain. Lovecraft wrote many other Cthulhu-themed stories that hint at the vast length mythology he had constructed. Most of his writings fit into this massive world narrative. Throughout his work, he managed to maintain the sense that we were glimpsing something huge and beyond comprehension. Dagon was an earlier piece, believed to be the very beginning of the Cthulhu mythos. Pickman's model is the tale of an artist who creates disturbing pieces, and independent filmmakers from many countries have turned the story into short films. At the Mountains of Madness is the nearest we get to an explanation of Lovecraft's fictional history. It is the journal of an explorer, one William Dyer, who journeys to Antarctica and discovers an ancient city beyond a huge mountain range. The explorers face horrid monsters and barely escape with their lives. The story would later inspire Dan O'Bannon to create the Alien franchise and John Carpenter to make The Thing. The Shadow Out of Time is another well-known story in which a monster steals a man's body for years at a time and has had some adaptations. The Shadow Over Innsmouth tells the story of a man stranded in an isolated town and his efforts to escape as the cult-like inhabitants hunt him through the streets. Lovecraft's own favourite of his stories was The Colour Out of Space, centred around a poisonous meteorite that crashes into a Massachusetts farm. My personal favourite of Lovecraft's work is Cats and Dogs, a 6,000-word essay making the very important point that cats are superior to dogs. Lovecraft wrote, Dogs, then, are peasants, and the pets of peasants. Cats are gentlemen, and the pets of gentlemen. The man certainly loved his cats. Other works included The Case of Charles Dexter Ward, Cool Air, once adapted into a comic called Baby It's Cold Inside, the Dreamland Stories, The Dreams in the Witch House, The Dulwich Horror, The Festival, From Beyond, a parody of Frankenstein eccentrically titled Herbert West, Reanimator, In the Walls of Eric's, Lovecraft's only science fiction pulp piece, The Music of Eric Zahn, The Nameless City, The Outsider, The Rats in the Walls, The Shunned House, an unusual parody called Sweet Ermengarde, The Temple, The Thing on the Doorstep, and The Whisperer in the Darkness. Many of these stories aren't horribly racist, and some are quite profound. His creations were used so freely, indeed with his urging, by a group of his contemporaries known as the Lovecraft Circle. Lovecraft's legacy lives on in the work of many writers and other artists. A number of well-known horror and fantasy writers, including Stephen King, Ramsey Campbell and Neil Gaiman, cite Lovecraft as one of their primary inspirations, and have written Cthulhu Mythos stories. Anthologies of new Cthulhu fiction continue to be popular, with the Black Wing series edited by S.T. Joshi and the Innsmouth anthologies edited by Stephen Jones, showcasing the work of a number of contemporary writers who continue to explore the mythology. Lovecraft's influence even extends to the creators of Japanese manga and anime, such as Junji Ito, Hideyuki Kikuchi, and Kiyaki J. Kanaka. Various science fiction works have also drawn inspiration from Lovecraft's alien monsters, and the less that is said here about the tentacle fetishes that have grown out of Cthulhu obsessions, the better. There was a rock band called H.P. Lovecraft in the 60s and 70s that wrote songs inspired by his works. The owners of their record company even got permission from Lovecraft law guardian August Derleth 
to use the name for their band. Metallica also released a song called Call of Cthulhu and various other songs that reference his works. In some ways, the horror of Lovecraft's work has become diluted by its popularity. Cuddly Cthulhu toys, t-shirts and other memorabilia are available everywhere. The children's book, Where's My Shoggoth by Ian Thomas, is also an interesting take that keeps the weird but dials down the fear. Finally, Lovecraft has inspired many games in the years since his death, despite loathing games while he was alive. Many tabletop games are based on or influenced by his works. For example, the legendary Dungeons & Dragons used his works as inspiration for the infamous Mind Flayers and the Far Realm, and the Great Old Ones are explicitly lifted from his work. A board game based on The Call of Cthulhu with the same name was released in 1981 and is in its seventh edition. The Shadow Over Innsmouth inspired the video game Resident Evil 4, and many, many other video games owe his imagination a debt, including World of Warcraft, Call of Duty, The Elder Scrolls, Bloodborne, Fallout, RuneScape, Smite, The Witcher, XCOM, and Hearthstone. A reader unfamiliar with Lovecraft would do well to pick up some of his better-known stories. In his time, his tales opened the eyes of readers to otherworldly horrors, the like of which they'd never imagined. Today, reading his work is a remarkable exercise in a kind of cultural anthropology. In them, we see the seeds of so many stories, games and movies we love. Breaking the Law How Fantastic is Too Far Good stories invoke and involve the imagination of the audience. Whether we prefer magic, futuristic technology or the impossible and inexplicable power of something that came from the shadows. Ultimately, we, as readers, are accepting the narrative of the writer and escaping the real world to envisage the scenes of their fiction. In order for the reader to maintain a suspension of disbelief, writers and designers behind fictional universes face many hurdles. In science fiction, one of the most important challenges is determining how things work, Often, this follows the Asimov method, with scientific rationalisation based on existing science and some pseudoscience added on top. However, not everyone is a professional physicist before they start creating science fiction. Some decide to go a different way and blend in a little magic or a dose of the supernatural. This is called science fantasy. How far is too far with mixing in the fantastic can be a subjective judgment call. After all, we are dealing with a varying threshold of an individual consumer's escapism. What jars one person out of the story can be different to what another is happy to accept. For writers and designers, it can be a little harder to judge where the border is, particularly when dealing with prior knowledge their audience may bring to their reading or viewing experience. As a trained scientist, this writer often finds himself annoyed by knowing too much. Flux capacitor, for example, may be meaningless enough to a layperson that it sounds right to power a time-travelling DeLorean, but to me, it's a nonsensical mashup of unrelated jargon. The illusion is shattered. This doesn't mean I disliked Back to the Future, only that I was the one jerk pointing out all the problems with it. It's worth noting that this debate has been part of science fiction for decades. Arthur C. Clarke's Third Law any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic, has always been a rationale for writers and designers to make imaginative leaps when considering what might be possible in the future. For some, this is made a bit more palatable when these leaps are rationalised as novums, 
a term coined by renowned theorist Darko Suvin in 1979. When relevant consultants are brought aboard a project, whether they be physicists, biologists or other specialists, the scientific basis for given premises is strengthened, meaning the pseudoscientific leap, or novum, is based on established theories and the resulting story can be plausible for more people. Essentially, advice from an expert in the field you're breaking the rules in can help you lie believably. There is also an issue of trying to identify the border between science fiction and science fantasy. Few physicists took issue with Star Wars, except Neil deGrasse Tyson, because the franchise announces itself right from the start as being far from our reality. A long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Star Wars is clearly planted firmly in the science fantasy genre. The Force, lightsabers and the Death Star are obviously ludicrous concepts, but we don't mind. So why is it that so many people took issue with that one scene in the 2013 film Gravity, spoilers ahead, where George Clooney is ejected into space as the protagonists attempt to reach a space station? The answer comes from the comparison. The premise of gravity requires it to be real, or as close to our reality as possible. That association is part of the narrative. That means flaws in the premise also invoke greater criticism and a sharper focus on how its story works. So people don't complain about Star Wars because when it started, they jumped to long ago and far, far away. The film never tried to present itself as realistic. That illusion never even began. However, when gravity bumped off George Clooney, it was a jarring shift from a movie attempting realism throughout its narrative to breaking one of the most fundamental laws of physics. Of course, this was an issue primarily pointed out by scientists, and those unfamiliar with the behaviour of objects in a vacuum may not have even noticed. Here's a good parallel explanation. Remember those skin-crawling, realistic renders of Mario from the early 2000s? Despite the fact that those images were more realistic than a collection of pixels, they were terrifying. Yet, when we watch an episode of The Simpsons, we don't experience the same feeling, despite the fact that they have butter-yellow skin and weird bulging eyes. This phenomenon is known as the uncanny valley, a measurement of where we draw the line in visual character representation between unreal acceptable and real. The human mind is comfortable with either extreme of the realism scale. Hyper-realistic graphics of modern video games, such as 2018's God of War, are okay. Absurdly unrealistic animations are also okay. Somewhere on the spectrum between those two is an area of unnerving similarity. It seems hard to place a firm border on when a story leaves science fiction and becomes science fantasy. When a work seems like it could be either, the only real way for a screenwriter or game developer to tell where they are on that scale is to simply test their work and see how it feels to audiences. There is no mathematical or scientific gauge of whether something is uncomfortable or unbelievable. However, the best books, games and films seem to get it right by establishing a few key assumptions like dragons exist, or time travel is possible, and then building internally consistent worlds from there. The level of attention to detail is important here. It's easy to tell how much research has been put into something in a science fiction story. The video game Elite Dangerous, released in 2014, features the frameshift drive, which is a nice example. As a physicist, faster-than-light travel is a tricky concept to tackle. It's widely considered impossible, but much of science fiction rests on it as a premise. 
In this case, even the name of the novum was clearly chosen carefully. Frameshift drive is an obvious reference to the theories of relativity, closely intertwined with the universal speed limit. Further investigation into the game's lore reveals references to the Alcubierre drive, a real theoretical model of faster-than-light travel. Not only have the developers satisfied the killjoys like this writer, but also the casual player, who simply wants to blow up some spaceships. The balance has been well struck. The video game series Fallout achieves the rare goal of successfully mixing plausibility and fantasy, and coming out with an enjoyable result. The odd mixture of black-and-white television, nuclear-powered cars, and domestic robot servants is entirely acceptable in the world the developers have created because it's internally consistent. The combination of the Cold War never really ending, with the transistor never being invented, means that, when you look closely, a lot of the game's world and its odd mix of technology actually makes sense. Radiation disease zombified humans? Sure, there are plausible avenues time could go down to give rise to that. Massive, glowing, mutated bipedal lizards? Fantastical, but fun. UK Games Expo 2019 Held at the Birmingham National Exhibition Centre, the Expo has become an annual event and a must-attend for board, card, role-playing and wargame enthusiasts all over the United Kingdom. The first UK Games Expo was held in 2007 at the Clarendon Suites in Edgbaston. But the convention really took off when it moved to the Hilton Birmingham Metropole and later the National Exhibition Centre. Now it's one of the largest gaming conventions in Europe. According to the press material, it's the world's third largest and there's certainly a sense of scale when you arrive. The convention monopolises the largest indoor exhibition spaces at the centre and also makes extensive use of the Hilton Birmingham Metropole rooms for tournament play and private hire. Inside the convention, the mixed use of spaces gives the event a unique feel. For the first-timer, it can be a great shopping exercise, the kind of expedition we used to do before internet shopping. However, there's still very much a place for this kind of spectacle, and when you go and experience this kind of weekend, you start to see why. When you arrive, there's a pretty quick ticket validation process, and then a couple of stands with the full programme and a helpful little promotional discount booklet. You can get a holder and lanyard for your ID card, pick up some printed material and head into the halls. At first sight, the UK Games Expo is a veritable hobby feast. Hundreds of stalls and thousands of people, more than 45,000 over the weekend in 2019. Whilst you might need to squeeze through the crowds and wait in a queue or two, it's wonderful to see so many enthusiastic people who like games wandering about and enjoying the spectacle. Bring and buy is a huge tradition at this kind of event, like Dragon Con and Warfare, but the bring and buy at UK Games Expo is the biggest in the UK. This is when people bring along things they no longer want and put them in a huge second-hand sale. Proceeds from each sale go to the contributor, with a small cut taken by the event organisers to go to a registered charity. Attendees can wander round the tables and pick up things they like for a bargain or find something rare that someone else no longer has a need for. Touring the stalls is quite an experience this year. There were huge displays from Games Workshop, Asmodee 
and some of the other major publishers of gaming content scattered about next to them are an assortment of startups, self-published works, consultants, manufacturers, stockists, and plenty of other stuff. There's something for all sorts of hobbyists here, and this definitely makes the Expo a much better destination than a Comic-Con for the shopping omnivore who's looking for something a bit different from comics and associated merchandise. It's worth sparing a thought for some of the hobby shops that are dotted around the country. Stores like Spirit Games in Burton have been around for decades, and seeing them at the UK Games Expo is like seeing old friends. You can tell people have come to the convention to buy things, and I'm sure these stores must do really well over the weekend. You'd hope so. They've been little islands for the gaming hobbies for years, so good luck to them here, and long may they continue. There's also a selection of new retailers and individual pop-up stores, selling books, leatherwork, wargame scenery, and plenty more. The UK Games Expo also offers a shop and drop. The free bus from the car parks runs pretty consistently, meaning you can drop stuff back at your car if you drove up, but there's also the equivalent of a cloakroom for your new purchases, so you can stack up the shopping before you leave at the end of the day. It's also an excellent place for a new company to launch and demonstrate its product, with many stores devoting much of their space to gaming demos. If there's a new release that takes your fancy, it's more than likely you can get a game to play, with one of the professional demonstrators on hand to explain the rules of their company's products. These fine folks can usually be identified by the colour of polo shirt they're wearing. There's a playtest corner where people bring their prototype games for testing and feedback. This is an excellent place to polish your ideas and start creating an audience for when you're ready to launch. Playing games is definitely a major part of the weekend. If there's a particular old game you'd like to play, there's a games library set up as well, which allows people to book something out, bag a table and have a go. This can be a great way to make new friends or spend a little time with your family, enjoying something you've just bought. A lot of the large spaces available to do this are near some of the fast food stalls and other eateries. There's a good selection here, although you have to pay the same kind of convention prices you'd have to pay in other events like this one. For the game player who wants a more serious challenge, there are a variety of tournaments to take part in throughout the weekend. A number of areas are specifically roped off for these events. You can find most of the popular games advertised in the programme, with X-Wing, Warhammer and the like, as well as a host of popular card game tournaments. There are board game tourneys as well, and whether you take these things seriously or not, this is a great way to meet and compete with new people. Included in the programme are a set of tailored seminars, panels and workshops from the great and the good of the gaming industry. UK Games Expo is big enough to be a draw for the very best, so expect a selection of your favourite YouTube board gaming reviewers, legendary game designers and more, taking their turn on stage to impart their wisdom and opinions on all aspects of gaming. It's a mark of just how diverse and varied the content is, that you might walk right past people who are unknown to you, but incredible celebrities, to someone else. The UK Games Expo is a really good place to bring children. Aside from the fact that an awful lot of the traders are producing games with children in mind, there are a host of different activities tailored specifically for young people. There's a really good atmosphere of inclusion, which makes this environment a great place to share your hobby with the rest of your family.
The convention's organisers are also very frank about what is and isn't permissible when it comes to gaming content. There was one issue this year which ended up on social media, but it was very quickly dealt with by the convention team who were transparent about their actions and responsibilities in relation to what happened. As a result, they gave their attendees confidence that if such matters should arise, they could talk to the organisers and expect situations to be resolved quickly and decisively. All the best conventions have more going on than you can manage to attend. That makes first-time attendees want to come back and get more involved the next time they go. In its 12th year, the UK Games Expo is just like that. In its current venue, there's plenty of scope for it to expand. And with the amount of commercial content they've managed to attract, it's quite clear the Expo has established itself as an integral part of the UK's gaming calendar. We hope the event will continue to go from strength to strength. If you haven't been to the UK Games Expo yet, the dates for 2020 have already been announced. The 29th to the 31st of May. Call of Demons I'm in position. Okay, move in. Check your flanks as you pass the houses. Jill, can you see Tommy? Yep, I'm covering. Breathing hard, I look left and right. The new VR headset is amazing. Pixel perfect. Playing Gulf Heroes in VR is like being in the Middle East for real. Well, if the TV's anything to go by. The USB frictionless treadmill is awesome too, making me earn every yard across the dirt track between the buildings. I reach cover and shoulder my weapon, a sleek MP4 from the selection screen, Nothing like the bright orange Bluetooth thingy I'm actually holding. Okay, I made it, I say. Confirmed. We're heading up. I glance back. Three figures are moving towards me. I face front, scanning the terrain ahead, ready to return fire if fired upon. Right, we're with you. The voice is the same level on headphones from the chat group, which is slightly jarring. If we were really in a war zone, I'd expect a friendly squeeze on the shoulder and louder personal greeting. Pete, Jack and Hazel are all there. Or rather, they're in-game. They're dressed in desert camo and body armour, their faces expressionless avatars, unseeing and unreal. I turn away, trying to maintain the illusion. Sit, Rep. Team Baphomet's still standing, they're 60 metres ahead. Spread out in a circle, they haven't moved since the start. Camping it. You got eyes on them? No, they're over by the huts. Get down here, then. They wait, and I catch my breath. The others aren't on VR. Pete plays with a mouse and keyboard, so does Jill. But then she's the sniper, so she has to be accurate. While Jack's using a gamepad. Hazel's got a headset, though. Beautiful, isn't it? I say. Shut up. Shut up yourself. Shouldn't buy rims for your car, eh? Zip it, you both! Right now, we're a team, remember? Let's go! We move out. I go first. Jill and Pete following with Jack and Hazel behind. I stare around, loving the view of burned-out cars, wrecked buildings, and bloody corpses. At the huts, I crouch down, peering through a broken window. I got one. What's he doing? Kneeling, facing the other way. Weird. I hug the wall, gun trained on the motionless avatar. I spot another kneeling figure, then more. The whole team. I get up close. Do you reckon they all crashed out? Might be, if they're on the LAN. What's this on the ground? 
I glance down. Lines are etched in the dirt. Some sort of symbol. Everything goes dark. Someone cries out. Pete, I shout, but no one answers. I turn around, but can't make out anything apart from the line of huts where I came from. Hazel? Jack? It's like the game just crashed into nighttime instead of gradually fading out the light. Weird. Jill? No one responds. I think about taking off the headset and texting them to find out if the game's frozen on them, but that'd ruin the immersion. There's something cool about being alone in the darkness. It's like a horror game, only here I've got an MP4. I run back the way I came, aiming for the cover of a hut. A light flashes and I notice something naked and dripping with bloody slime, bigger than a human. For a moment, everything seems real. I level the MP3, spraying bullets, dodging and screaming like I've got a wasp in my clothes. Then the clip runs out. The dark and silence close in again. It doesn't make sense. This is Gulf Heroes, a war sim first-person shooter. How can a monster be here? Has someone hacked the server? Not acceptable, especially in a ranked tournament. Hey, anyone, where are you all? The cool treadmill and VR experience is now not so cool. I want to take the headset off, but I know the moment I do, someone could jump me and everything would be lost. European ranking points are at stake. If we lose the match because I got scared, I won't live it down. I start towards the huts again, reloading. The magazine is cold metal in my hand, and I jam it into the slot. There's a faint hiss on the team chat channel, and the game's ambience behind that. A gentle nighttime breeze stirs the hairs on my arms. Wait, what? I stare down at rolled-up desert camo sleeves and the arm of my avatar. I feel the wind's touch. That's not possible. Tommy, is that you? It's Hazel's voice on the channel, but faint and distant. Where are you? I ask. I don't know. I I fell. Can you see anything? Any kind of landmark I can use to get to you? I'm not sure. It's so dark here. The map function isn't working for me. Of course. The map mode shows our positions. I move my thumb to the hotkey on the side of my gun, but it isn't there. I... I... I can't find the button. Me neither. Can you do something so I can find you? Maybe fire some rounds into the air? Tommy, there's something out here. It'll get me if I do that. Remember, we're in a game, Hayes. I say the words, but I'm struggling to believe them. Do you see the others? Pete's here. He's dead, Tommy. His face really looks like Pete. Must be the light. I can't feel my legs, Tommy. There's a catch in her breathing. Sounds like she's in pain. Take the headset off, I tell her. But we'll lose. No, we won't. You're stuck God knows where and I can't find you. If the, if the game's still on, the only way we can win is if I find the rest of that Baphomet team. You can help me. Okay. I'm running for the buildings again. Cover. I need cover. Gravel crunches underfoot. Sound and sensation now as if... Tommy, is that you I can hear? I stop again. I don't think so. I'm... Gunfire erupts away to my left. I turn and almost trip over my own feet. Hazel screams over the channel. Instinctively, my hands go to my ears and my MP4 tumbles into the dirt. Instead of a headset, I feel a helmet and ear defenders. Hazel! There's no response. 
I stare into the dark, in the direction of the shooting. It's from where I've just been. Is that something moving? A black shadow against the black background. Someone must be there, unless Hazel killed herself. I pick up the MP4 and start walking towards the noise as quietly as I can. My fingers grope along the gun for the night vision hotkey, but I can't find that either. It doesn't make sense. I counted five figures motionless in a circle. Could they have been faking? My lips quirk. It was a cheesy move if they were. People watching the live stream were probably laughing their heads off. I should have put a bullet in them when I had the chance. More movement. Something bobbing up and down, running towards me. I stop, squint, level the MP4, switching it to semi-automatic. Three round bursts, the best way to be accurate and save ammunition. Not that it should matter here, with ammo dump power-ups and the like seeded around the battle zone. But with all the strangeness going on, I can't rely on being able to find any of them. I aim at the shape and squeeze the trigger. The gun barks and kicks in my hands. There's a grunt in the darkness, but whatever I hit keeps moving, keeps coming. I fire again and miss. Jill's the accurate one, not me. But Jill's gone and the stakes are higher now. I don't know what failure will mean. The end of the game, or... Another burst. The shadow jerks and there is an inhuman growl, but the running figure doesn't slow. Another. The staccato gunfire illuminates a face. Pale, white skin. Covered in blood. Angry red eyes. And a mouth full of fangs. Are those horns? The creature leaps, arms outstretched. I yell, stumble backwards and trip on a boulder. I hit the ground and my breath comes out on a gasp. I try to bring up my gun, but there's nothing to aim at. I struggle to get up, but then something grabs my shoulder and I feel something sharp sink into the flesh of my neck. Impossible. There is a voice inside me, welling up, even as I feel my flesh being torn and consumed. You want to believe in your artifice. You wish it to be real. Only your mind holds you back. The limitations of your senses and physiology, your belief in your frame of reference. There are other experiences, other dimensions, axes that measure existence. Your tiny minds explore one form. Your technology touches on another. You opened a door. You have awoken us. Promising the Stars, the three biggest space games of the 2010s. In the first half of this decade, three games came along that promised something no game had offered before. The opportunity to fly freely through space and land on and explore planets on foot and in a spaceship. The stories of those games have become some of the industry's most dramatic narratives. Now, in 2019, we ask, how close have these games come to delivering on their promises? In the early 2010s, it was as if several people received an email from the mid-1990s all at the same time. What are you doing? Get back to making great space sims. In 2012, Chris Roberts, creator of the Wing Commander and Privateer series, announced Star Citizen, an ambitious space game combining the best of modern first-person shooter games and flight simulator like Spaceflight. In November of that year, David Braben, creator of Elite, one of the most seminal video games of all time, and its sequels, announced Elite 4, Elite Dangerous. 
It promised free-form space and atmospheric flight in a one-to-one scale, scientifically plausible model of the Milky Way, as well as, for the first time in the series, the ability to walk around spaceships, space stations, and planets. Two years later, Sean Murray of Hello Games announced No Man's Sky, a kaleidoscopic vision of a space game in which you explore a stunning galaxy, planet by planet in your starship, at your own pace and direction. These games, though all different, promised to break ground in several common ways. Two of them relied on the magic of procedural generation to create bafflingly large game worlds, with Star Citizen later promising to add some of the same. All offered an experience free of directed goals or scripted linear campaigns, at least initially. All offered the thrill of genuine exploration at the player's own pace, and all promised to let you fly a spaceship towards a planet, descend through its atmosphere, fly over its landscape, set down, climb out of the cockpit, and walk around. Players of video games were electrified. We hadn't known we wanted this, but boy did we want it. Star Citizen became a very successful Indiegogo campaign, and then a very successful Kickstarter campaign. Elite also ventured onto Kickstarter and handily met its fundraising goals. In the meantime, No Man's Sky stayed away, but generated a level of hype and expectation that studios have come to dread. What these developers promised, and what tapped into the player's desire so deeply, was not just a fun game to play for a while. They promised the opportunity to escape and inhabit an entirely new universe. A science fiction universe you can live in, as David Braben put it. This article is not a review of these games, though it will necessarily discuss their features. Rather, it asks, how close have they come to that vision? Where are they today? How do these experiences compare to each other, and what are they like to play? No Man's Sky is one of the most interesting stories in video games this decade. It is the redemption story of the industry. For a while after launch, its name was analogous with overpromising and disingenuous marketing. Three years later, it is widely considered a triumph. Hello Games are widely perceived to have selflessly toiled for three years to do right by their customers, and have released a number of updates that address nearly all of the main grievances against the game in 2016. Less widely recognised is the fact that it's a phenomenally successful new intellectual property, and that each patch has delivered launch-scale revenues for the studio. No Man's Sky is, first and foremost, a survival game. It bears the fundamental hallmarks of other games in the Minecraft legacy, inventory management, hacking at rocks and trees, and crafting pyramids. Want to fly to that star system? Cool, you'll need a warp cell. How do you get that? Well, you'll need a wooden pipe and two wingnuts. Great, you already have the wingnuts, but how do you get a pipe? Ah, you can make that with six bark shavings and some kelp paste. Right, time to shoot some trees. I like No Man's Sky, despite, rather than because of, the survival elements. They interrupt the delight of discovering new worlds. Refueling is a good example. In Elite Dangerous and Star Citizen, you refuel by selecting the appropriate option at the spaceport and paying some in-game money. In No Man's Sky, you refuel by shooting rocks. However, exploration in No Man's Sky is gratifying when you get to it. More so, enthusiasts might argue, because of the faff involved in doing so. Since release, the developers have made it less frustrating, with well-conceived features like constructible portals and summonable freighters. Planets are beautiful, with varied, interesting terrain, a rich palette of colours and weather, and interesting wildlife. In this way, No Man's Sky undeniably does deliver on the promise of free-form exploration, epitomised with the seamless planetary approach, landing and climbing out of the cockpit. It's done so since launch. Compared to the two other titles discussed here, though, it does so shallowly. The planets each have one biome. The poles are identical to the equator. They have no running water or volcanism. 
You can broadly tick off an entire planet once you've walked 200 meters along the shoreline and seen the color of the trees, water, and grass. The three races' buildings are identical, and they have no towns or cities. The spaceships have all the complexity of the cars in the Grand Theft Auto games from the 2000s. A bit more customization, perhaps, but it's press X to go, press Y to get out. In short, No Man's Sky is arguably now the most finished product of these three games being discussed here, but its scope is much, much smaller than the other two. Since Elite Dangerous was first released in 2014, it has quietly improved with little fanfare and no features obviously targeted at increasing the player base. There has been no significant step along the development roadmap as laid out in the Kickstarter campaign since 2015, when landing on Airless Worlds was introduced. A big update is coming late next year, apparently viewed internally as a re-release of the game, and it's widely expected to be either walking around spaceships and space stations, or landing on atmospheric worlds. Space dogfighting and Elite's Galaxy are the game's two undisputed triumphs. Nobody has ever said Elite's Galaxy is rubbish or the combat is boring. The game's stellar forge engine has created a realistically sized approximation of the Milky Way, which is utterly fascinating and humbling to explore. You can visit every star you can see in the sky. There's no painted on skybox, the backdrop changes as you traverse the play space, the nebulae and stars moving in relation to you. It is realistic, which means inevitably that it's a bit boring. Space is big and empty, and the not-empty bits are mostly dust and rocks. However, planets are believable, varied, intimidating, and scientifically plausible, despite players only having access to airless rocks and ice balls so far. Each ship feels very different, and all aspects of their design are excellent. Engineering, customising and tweaking every aspect of your ship's components, adds an order of magnitude to its potential complexity. The flight model is a wonderful blend of the different styles featured in the earlier games. Flight Assist makes the spaceflight feel like atmospheric flight, so you can turn it off to experience something close to Newtonian physics in space. Shifting your ship's power between weapon cooling, shields and thrusters is also necessary for higher echelon combat, which some players don't begin to experiment with until they've been playing for several years. There is a pleasing rock-paper-scissors aspect to the combat and ship outputting. This isn't a role-playing game in which once you reach level 50 you have all the best stuff and you can't be beaten by someone at a lower level. A small ship, outfitted smartly and flown by a pilot with a plan, can take out the most expensive ship in the game, and that is bloody wonderful. The core experience at the heart of the 1984 Elite is still there. Joyously fly a spaceship from starport to starport, taking advantage of the different economy types to sell high and buy low, making money to upgrade your ship. However, there is still much negativity around Elite Dangerous, particularly on its developer-hosted forums. Why? Fundamentally, it's not because of what the game is, it's because of what it's not yet. Elite Dangerous was sold to potential players in 2012 and 2013 as a science fiction universe you can live in. David Braben famously promised us the ability to chase big dinosaurs around on alien worlds and leave our cockpits to stow away in other players' ships. Official concept art showed pilots striding around space stations and first-person shooter-style combat. The two fundamental features these features require atmospheric landings and space legs, or the ability for your avatar to walk around, have been demanded by much of the player base ever since. This impatience is piqued by the fact that many veteran players feel that they paid for these features when they backed the game. Frontier, the developer, notoriously don't communicate further than the next point release. They rarely give roadmaps beyond a year ahead, and when they do, they tend to fall short. 
Players reasonably feel that this refusal to talk about the game's future forms a stark contrast to how effusive the company was before release, and it worries backers. The developer now refuses to even confirm that they're working on space legs on atmospheric landings. However, there is a good chance that players waiting for these things will have good news in 2020. A developer post in August 2018 said that a major milestone in the history of Elite was being worked on. While atmospheric planets have been accessible in previous Elite games, walking around has not, so its introduction would be a milestone for Elite, the series. Also, an apparent leak posted in spring of this year, ostensibly from a friend of a member of Frontier staff, suggested that Space Legs was the update due in 2020. Though greeted with scepticism at the time, other predictions in the leak have been proven right over the months. If all of this is true, it will mean that players finally get the ability to walk around their ships six years after the game's initial release. That's still well within the 10-year development timeline originally posited, but hardly hot on the heels of 2015's Horizons update, which first introduced planetary landings. Alone among these three games, Star Citizen isn't yet released. It's been in development for most of this decade, and a single-player campaign called Squadron 42 is built for release in 2020. It is viewed by believers as a groundbreaking project that will be everything they want in a game, and by most other people as a cautionary tale about newfangled, unregulated funding platforms like Kickstarter. In May of this year, Forbes ran an article demolishing Star Citizen. It lined up designers who had been involved with the project to testify against Chris Roberts' management and allocation of resources and focus, as well as Cloud Imperium, the developers, approach to raising funds. The article ran with an accompanying piece on other failed Kickstarter projects, and made scathing references to Roberts' personal life. Star Citizen has entered a stage in development in which many people view it as a disaster waiting to happen. This isn't my opinion, because I've played it. Star Citizen is a wonderful, incredible feat of smart, ambitious game design. The one star system we have access to is several orders of magnitude larger than most finished games, and you can log in, create your avatar, summon your spaceship, lift off, and traverse the solar system smoothly. You can land on planets, take on missions, meet up with other players, dogfight, race vehicles, often without encountering bugs for hours or more. This is a game, not a tech demo. It's a game that just happens to still be in alpha. You know how in PC games, your character's movement speed is limited to a painfully slow walk, a jog, or a sprint? In Star Citizen, you use the scroll wheel on your mouse to change your movement speed. Neat, right? Similarly, your stamina meter is your heart rate, and the game's heads-up display mostly disappears when you remove your helmet. Much of the world's interactive, and you hold down the interaction button to reveal what you can do with objects. This allows varied options for interactions in the world, but leaves it visually uncluttered when you're not doing so. The game is full of smart ideas like this. There are still bugs. At the time of writing, when you die in the game, it often freezes and has to be forced closed via the task manager. But, incredibly, in the hours I've played it as research for this article, I've actually experienced fewer bugs than I did in a recent afternoon fighting in conflict zones in Elite Dangerous. Unfinished it may be, but what is available to play right now of Star Citizen is most definitely a game. The fact that each release window has slipped and we are now seven years after the game was announced is evidence enough that there have been problems in development. However, there is one often overlooked factor in light of which this should be viewed. Star Citizen was originally meant to be a much smaller game. In 2014, as the money kept rolling in, Cloud Imperium asked backers whether to keep offering stretch goals. 55% of the players said yes. 
Now, the scope is massive, and arguably implausible in parts, like the goal of item permanence in the world, whereby an object dropped on one place on one planet will still be there for another player to find, potentially years later. This expansion in scope is probably why the game is late, and you could call it a feature creep, but it's not fair to suggest that most players and backers didn't support that choice. So which is closest to delivering on the promise? These games are often compared, but outer space is really the only common factor between them. No Man's Sky is a wildly different experience from the others. It's simpler, more arcadey, and essentially a crafting game. Elite Dangerous and Star Citizen are both true space sims, but the different approaches taken in their development have meant that they are in very different places today. Elite Dangerous has quietly and reliably developed since release. Players may not have seen the leaps forward they were trained to expect by the 2015 update, but every patch has, despite many bugs, undeniably made Elite a better game. That said, if you'd said to players in 2016, by the way, you'll still be waiting for space legs and atmospheric landings in 2019, many of them would have been dismayed. Elite arguably needs these features. The station services interface is a blatant placeholder for interactions that should take place between your pilot and simulated people. And it is frustrating to fly amongst these beautiful planets and know that you can only land on the most boring of them. Those wonderfully designed spaceships need to be explorable on foot if they are to become places rather than essentially players' avatars. A lot of development time has been spent on things that have, in hindsight, not seen the uptake they could have. Multi-crew, the ability to beam another member into your ship to pilot a small deployable fighter or operate turrets, rarely works smoothly, and is less fun than it could have been. CQC, a drop-in arena combat mode, is similarly unloved. Less patient players might reasonably ask why these features were even developed if they weren't going to be done properly, given that the game's architecture was always going to make them difficult. And Elite is hobbled by its architecture. Its networking is peer-to-peer, meaning that each player, in an instance, reports their own status to and adjudicates the others, rather than a central server adjudicating for all players. This means that each instance is only as fast as its poorest internet connection, and getting many players into one instance is an exercise in frustration. Multicrew often just doesn't work. Meetups between more than a few players are difficult and unreliable, and team combat with Thargoids is horribly bugged. Essentially, Elite Dangerous is not very massively multiplayer, despite the Steam page description. However, most of what is there is excellent. Spaceflight and the galaxy itself remain incredible, and by and large, the features that have been added since launch, while not as transformational as base building No Man's Sky, for example, have made the game better. Elite is not yet a science fiction universe that you can truly live in, but it is one that is an utter pleasure to fly in. No Man's Sky does a good job of fleshing out its four pillars of explore, trade, survive, and fight. Combat is fine, your multi-tool is a customizable gun, and the sentinels are formidable and interesting enemies. The combat in No Man's Sky is no worse than a lot of games this decade. Similarly, the planets are fun to visit. Spaceflight is an arcadey joy. Base building is rich and interesting, and is a surprisingly large part of the game's appeal for a feature that wasn't planned at launch. All of this comes from a team that has not exceeded 25 people since launch. For context, Elite Dangerous's team at the time of writing is around 100, and Star Citizen's number is in the several hundreds. Being compared to other games in this article doesn't do No Man's Sky any favours. It doesn't offer the depth of experience that those do, but its team is a small fraction of their size. No Man's Sky is a kooky, ambitious, fun cult game on its own, but it's the story of the game's development, 
that makes this such a triumph. Few games have travelled the distance in players' estimation that this game has. Star Citizen is undeniably the most impressive in scope of the three games dealt with here. It makes No Man's Sky look like a mobile game in comparison, and a few minutes traversing its landscapes or spaceways cast Elite dangerous visuals in a poor light. It's also more complex than Elite mechanically. The ships have directional shields which players can manipulate, and several fight assist analogues, offering a potentially deeper flight model. Also, it's being built as all one thing, so if its release before Elite includes both atmospheric landings and walking around, then it will actually have reached its planned maturity first. Cloud Imperium needs to keep raising funds to keep the lights on. This has led to some charmless sales practices, like selling access to live streams. Goodwill has a limit, and there is a finite number of people who will back a project like this. There is a real feeling among the players of this game that Cloud Imperium need to ship something ready, soon, to keep up its momentum. But contrary to most of what is written about Star Citizen, it is not only a game. It's already more of a game than many finished games. If you have the patience to learn how it all works, the game really needs a tutorial, there is a tremendous amount of fun to be had in the persistent universe. Chris Roberts, Sean Murray, and David Braben are three likeable geeks who asked for our money in the early 2010s in return for something we all dreamed of. The ability to explore space, planets, and starships in a science fiction universe we could make a home in, not just play. Are they there yet? No, not yet. But keep dreaming, just a little longer. Two Knights and Their Hollow Souls Dark Souls and Hollow Knight are two brilliant but very different games with some common themes. How similar are the worlds of Lordran and Hallownest, and how deep do these similarities go? Dark Souls is a game series renowned for its punishing difficulty. Since the release of its precursor, Demon's Souls, in 2009, from Software's formula, of high-damaging enemies, a low threshold for mistakes, and heavy consequences for failure, has become something of a benchmark for difficulty in video game journalism, with other challenging games such as Cuphead often being compared to Souls. But the Souls games are more than just a challenge to be overcome. They tell the tale of ruined and crumbling worlds, of gods fallen from grace, demons on the verge of extinction, and the populace consumed by a terrible hungering curse. The undead haunted land of Lordran is brought to gloomy life through tragic characters, breathtaking locations and cryptic hints scattered in the darkest corners of the game. At the heart of it all is the eternal, conflicting cycle of light and dark. In 2017, the indie developer Team Cherry released the Kickstarter-funded Hollow Knight, a roguelike Metroidvania, with high-damaging enemies, a low threshold for mistakes, and heavy consequences for failure. This, naturally, seemed very similar to Dark Souls, with the same steep learning curve for a newcomer, and the same sense of accomplishment when finally toppling a boss five times the size of your character. In addition, it doesn't take much exploration of the ruined, husk-infected kingdom of Hallownest to feel that it bears more than a passing similarity to Dark Souls' Lordran. As a player delves into the fragments of the plot, from the very top of Crystal Peak to the depths of the ancient basin, they discover a mythic conflict between light and darkness, broken gods, and a great tragedy spawned from fear of the sinister infection. 
While I was rather late to the party with both the Souls game and Hollow Knight, I did end up playing the two back-to-back and was very quickly able to draw parallels. Early in my journey through Hollow Knight, I find myself matching the locations in Hallownest to locations in Lordran. The Forgotten Crossroads is bleak and home to weak, slow enemies, and the first two bosses of the game, just like the Undead Burg, in Dark Souls. The next area, Green Path, is filled with lush vegetation and animate plant life, similar to Darkroot Garden. These comparisons continue throughout, with perhaps the most striking being the City of Tears and Anor Londo, both of which represent a central location in their respective games geographically and from a narrative perspective. It's in these wondrous cities, their former glory faded to shadows, that the Knight of Hollow Knight and the Chosen Undead of Dark Souls gather together all the tasks they've completed so far and are sent out to find their next, more impactful challenges. This is not to say that the worlds are completely identical. Lordran is heavily inspired by medieval Europe, with some areas being almost exact recreations of real places. The exterior of Anor Londo, for example, looks identical to certain parts of Milan Cathedral. Also, the areas in Dark Souls twist and wind round each other in a disorienting, yet cunning way. Any one point can be reached from any other with relative ease using the secret routes and shortcuts which riddle the game. Meanwhile, Hallownest is altogether unique, with its simple art style representing a world created by civilised insects. The architecture has recognisable elements such as street lamps and cemeteries, but everything is framed in an inhuman way. Tombstones are shaped like beetle shells, swords are called nails, and the currency is implied to be a strange kind of food. While it's still easy to become lost in the maze of caverns or tunnels in Deepnest or the Royal Waterways, every location in Hallownest is kept very separate from the others. The map, which the player gradually fills in, helps to demystify this, showing each location as a rough rectangle filled with its own tangle of paths and rooms. Navigation round Hallownest takes longer than in Lordran, but is overall more straightforward and intuitive once the map is complete. Regardless of how the player explores these games, they'll encounter enemies and obstacles blocking their path. They again handle these in different ways, both playing to the strengths of their different genres. Dark Souls places a heavy emphasis on combat, granting players and enemies a huge variety of weapons and actions to use when fighting. While this provides great scope in how a player can approach any given enemy, the unifying theme in all methods of fighting in Dark Souls is commitment. Most attack animations are slow compared to other games, movement is highly restricted, almost every action consumes stamina, and any hits will often deal heavy damage with a chance to stun. Thus, every action is deliberate, fights become a test of judgement, and weighing resources and opportunities against the very real risk of a swift death. Hollow Knight, by contrast, places more emphasis on speed and movement than risk and reward. There are no weapon armour, or even cosmetic options for the player's knight. And while equipping certain charms will favour different playstyles by tweaking the knight's abilities in various ways, the core gameplay will be largely unchanged. The knight can move quickly, especially once the moth-wing cloak and the monarch wings have been acquired to allow dashing and double-jumping respectively. 
Fast, close-range slashes with the nail are the only real combat manoeuvre the knight possesses, and enemies will often have only one or two attacks of their own. There's no stamina to restrict these simple attacks or player movement, and no shields to block enemy attacks with, which all combines to emphasise the importance of speed and dodging. Some areas of the game, most notably the White Palace, are almost completely free of enemies, with the challenge being entirely based around platforming and the use of the knight's remarkable manoeuvrability. Even the nail can be used to pogo off enemies' heads or hazardous spike pits, the sole weapon in the game becoming a movement tool. Yet despite these differing approaches to challenge and obstacles, both Dark Souls and Hollow Knight culminate in similar ways. Spoilers follow. The player character faces off against a light-based deity. In Dark Souls, this is Gwyn, the Lord of Sunlight, a Zeus-like figure who used the power of the first flame to defeat the dragons and bind the cursed soul of humanity to the light of fire. It's implied that in his fear of humanity's inherent darkness, his act of linking the fire irrevocably changed the nature of the world and the relationship of light and darkness. While he's portrayed in great majesty throughout the game, from the massive statues in Anor Londo to the church dedicated to his sunlight miracles, he's revealed as a shriveled hollow when the player finally meets him. Hollow Knight's radiance is, like Gwyn, a deity representative of the sun, though in a far more literal sense as she first appears as the sun itself. In keeping with the insectoid nature of the game's characters, the Radiance's true form is that of a white moth, capable of blasting the night with beams of sunlight and summoning a rain of divine swords. Unlike Gwyn, whose importance is made clear to the player right from the Dark Souls opening cutscene, the Radiance is altogether more mysterious. Very few characters mention or know about her, and none call her by name. Two of the game's endings are even possible without ever having encountered her. Nonetheless, if a player searches hard enough, hints at the Radiance's influence can be found, such as the ironwork fences wrought in her image and the Pale King's references to the blinding light that plagues their dreams. Despite their roles as Sun God final bosses, Gwyn and the Radiance take very different places in their respective stories. Dark Souls Gwyn foresaw humanity's age of dark, eventually overthrowing his age of light, and took measures to prevent it, binding the souls of human undead to the first flame and allowing the curse to be temporarily staved off if dark humanity was fed to the flame. Hollow Knight's The Radiance, by contrast, was supplanted by a creature called the Pale King. The Pale King sealed her within a vessel of darkest void, the eponymous Hollow Knight, to prevent her from spreading her infection through the dreams of his subjects. The interesting comparison here is that the Pale King bears significant similarity to Gwyn in all but the aspect of being a light-based god. Gwyn feared the dark and used light to attempt to stop it. Meanwhile, the Pale King feared the radiance and used the void to attempt to stop her. However, both Gwyn's and the Pale King's plans were flawed, the undead curse continued to afflict Lordran, and the Radiance was able to continue spreading her infection from within the Hollow Knight. This leaves the player seeking a way to correct the mistakes of Gwyn and the Pale King, and ultimately succeed them as the new rulers of their lands. The final contrast to mention is the contrast in tone. 
Lordran and Hallownest are both in states of ruin. Only a scarce few characters remain who are not hostile to the chosen undead and the knight. But these characters and their dialogue are vital to setting the tone of each game. Perhaps Dark Souls' most famous character is Solaire of Astora, a knight known for his unwavering faith in the sun and his friendly demeanour. However, if his story is followed into the fiery demon ruins, he falls into depression and can eventually go mad when he discovers a parasite which glows like the sun. Similarly, Siegmeier of Katerina is filled with valour and courage, yet, as the player helps him, he begins to feel more and more useless, and is ultimately slain by his daughter, when loss of purpose turns him hollow. Even Oscar, the first character to help the chosen undead, is killed by the player's own hand. In Lordran, every character is acutely aware of the ruin and decay of the world, and the crushing weight of futility erodes away any optimism or sanity these characters may possess. Meanwhile, Hollow Knight's characters are surrounded by a similarly gloomy world. Most of the populace has fallen to the infection, and their mighty saviour, the Pale King, is missing. Yet Elderbug, the first character encountered, can have his pessimistic outlook changed through the simple act of bringing him a flower. Characters such as Cloth, Hornet and Tiso refuse to give up on their convictions, even in the face of insurmountable odds. All draw some degree of comfort and confidence from even the smallest of things. Quirrell is perhaps the best example of this, an itinerant scholar who, despite his amnesia, never ceases to seek out answers. The player can often find him admiring some of the most spectacular views in the game, such as the City of Tears and Crystal Peak, and he always speaks of such places with satisfied wonder. By the end of his story, he's reached the most beautiful and tranquil area in the game, the Blue Lake, and the knight can share a moment of silent contemplation with him at the water's edge. This, I feel, is where the games truly differ. Dark Souls will not, cannot, allow its characters to rest easy or satisfied. It does everything it can to drag the player down into its oppressive atmosphere, working on the basis that the greatest triumphs can only be won through the greatest of adversary. Hollow Knight is gentler, giving every cloud of tragedy a silver lining of hope. As Elderbug says, after receiving the flower, perhaps dreams aren't such a bad thing after all. Review Blood of an Exile Flawless Spurshard is an exiled noble, banished for a heinous act, the massacre of Almiran rebels and their families. He is forced to become a dragon slayer and to wander the realm facing these terrible and beautiful creatures in single combat until, eventually, one of them wins and kills him. Unfortunately, Burchard has proven far too successful at his work and during his years of exile has racked up more than 60 kills. He is summoned back by the king and offered his old life back in exchange for the completion of an impossible mission. Failure means death and refusal means death, so it's an opportunity he cannot turn down. Blood of an Exile is the first book in Brian Naslund's Dragons of Terror trilogy. The genre of gritty epic fantasy is a crowded one, with many writers vying for the reader's attention. Naslund appears to be aware of this as Blood of an Exile starts fast, with a dramatic duel between Burchard and a dragon, before shifting to a second narrative 
and recounting the journey of a mysterious traveller, Garrett, as he arrives in the kingdom of Almira. Naslan's story is filled with the tropes of the genre, with a mixture of assassins, thieves, battles, heroes, dragons, and different forms of magic. There is an ecological theme to the writing as well, which is gradually revealed as being part of the plot. As with all things, there are certain simplifications made by Nasland and his characters, as he outlines the way in which the people of his fantasy world need to make difficult decisions, and occasionally oppose innovation and industry to preserve their environment. The real-world parallel is quite clear, although it is also somewhat ironic, given the way in which the same themes were explored when J.R.R. Tolkien described the idyllic countryside of the Shire, and set a template for writing traditional fantasy throughout the 20th and 21st centuries. Naslan's take is not preachy, but his view, outlined through the proxy of his characters, is fairly clear, and this is likely to be a theme that is developed further in the rest of the trilogy. Blood of an Exile doesn't stray far from the main themes of the genre, and Nasland handles these with solid and competent writing. The tendency towards modern dialogue without embellishment is something he embraces, which can be an issue for some readers. Most of his characters are well thought out and established carefully, but they do not rise above those in other fantasy epics, although his four principal perspective cast are all interesting in their own way. The name Garrett, used for an assassin, does raise immediate comparisons to a popular video game franchise. Events are drawn together for the story's resolution. For the most part, this is handled well, although there is one character who manages to travel a very long way very quickly, in time to make a decisive contribution to the final battle of the book. The conclusion leaves enough loose ends for us to look forward to the next instalment of the trilogy. Blood of an Exile is a fast-moving page-turner, full of the elements that genre fans will like. Contained within the story we have a quest involving a disparate band of individuals who, over time, become loyal to one another. We have a siege, we have political games, betrayal, assassinations and more. In many ways, for traditional fantasy readers, this book is like an old friend you have never met. Blood of an Exile by Brian Nasland is published by Tor. Kickstarter Roundup Kickstarter can be a good place to find real gems. From electronic devices to games and books, this platform has seen a number of big successes. We've rounded up some of the most promising recent projects. These are all available worldwide. First up, there's the Lyra. The Raspberry Pi has already gained a reputation as a vehicle to emulate classic video game consoles. Lyra takes this one step further by allowing you to play the classics on a portable device, bringing the history of gaming right into your hands and allowing you to carry hundreds of games around in your pocket. The Lyra features a 5-inch display at a resolution of 800 by 480 pixels, with a DPI interface and HDMI out, allowing you to connect it to a bigger screen or TV. You can even add extra controllers via a USB port, so that others can play at the same time. It has an integrated speaker and a 3.5mm audio out socket, an SD card slot and a 3000mAh LiPo battery. What's really set the Lyra apart, though, is that you get a fully working mini-personal computer in the palm of your hands, powerful enough to surf the internet, watch movies, and do basic tasks like emailing and such. You can also tinker with sensors and gadgets through the exposed Pi GPIO port. The system comes in two versions. The first comes complete out of the box, letting you get started within five minutes. The other comes as a kit, allowing you to see how handheld devices are put together. You don't need any special tools or knowledge to put the kit together though, and you can still do this in as little as 15 minutes. 
Both versions come with some pretty comprehensive guides and tutorials, showing you everything from assembly to the operating system installation and game downloads. Lyra is already proving popular. Launched in July, it's reached almost double its Kickstarter goal at the time of writing. Next up, there's Gatefall. Jack Dyer is a designer making big waves in the board game world. He's already had a great deal of success with Kickstarter, with five projects funded so far, including the brilliant card game Superfight, not to mention Red Flags, Blank Marry Kill, and You've Got Problems. This time, Jack's designing a strategic miniatures, card, and resource management game that merges different genres. In Chapter 1, a rift has opened between the worlds of fantasy and post-apocalypse. Chapter 2 will add the genres of science fiction and zombies. Players take control of a team and use action points to defeat the other side and win victory points. Characters respawn when defeated and can even tag in a new character from the same team to help them out. There are lots of different ways to play. You can streamline your deck to beat your opponent with the number of actions you have available, upgrade your character to move less but hit harder and smarter, equip them with weapons that boost abilities beyond upgrades, or a combination of these. Each character has unique abilities, and is to be represented by big and detailed resin models, much larger than the standard 35mm. The game has modular rift boards, which allow extended play when other genres or chapters are added. An arena mode is also being added, allowing three or more players to fight battle royale style. Gatefall has already far surpassed the goal of $13,543 at the time of writing, so this game is going to be made, which is just as well as it looks a great deal of fun. Next, it's Clawhaven and the Goblin Grotto. If you have your own 3D printer or access to one and enjoy tabletop games, Clawhaven and the Goblin Grotto offers 3D printable designs of the town of Clawhaven and the complex cavern of the Goblin Grotto. All the models are designed using the open lock tile system, which offers modular buildings and scenery to be constructed at any size, while maintaining a true one-inch grid system, allowing interlocking compatibility. The original pledge offers models to build the townhouse, cottage, homestead, grand hostel, cabin, tavern, chalet, watchtower, and shy stone fences. Stretch goals, however, expand the little town of Clawhaven into a city with shops, guardhouses, towers, grottos, caverns, furniture, and many other buildings. All the models are delivered as optimised STL files to use on your home 3D printer. Next, it's Immortal Era, number one. 200 years in the future and there hasn't been a single recorded death since the millennium. Overcrowding and limited resources have forced the population in two. The lucky microchipped few live in the relative luxury of Megalopolis City, while the rest eke out an existence in the brutal and dangerous underground. Author Edward Davies has had the idea of the Immortal Era rattling around his head for over 25 years. It's through the magic of Kickstarter that he's finally able to see his dream becoming a reality. The Kickstarter campaign has now been successfully backed, and you'll be able to buy his graphic novel soon. Next, it's Dwellings of Eldervale. Dwellings of Eldervale is one of those Kickstarter successes everyone hopes to make, but few ever see. With a goal of $80,000, it has reached over 650% funding with 30 stretch goals unlocked, and is now available as pre-order. Designed by award-winning board game designer Luke Laurie, and produced by popular indie developers Breaking Games, Dwellings is a miniatures board game where giant elemental monsters roam while dragons, wizards, and warriors battle for dominance over eight elemental realms. Up to five players control unique factions seeking adventure and ultimately to dwell in Eldervale. One of the best things about this game is the replay factor. With 16 diverse factions, 8 player boards, 9 monster cards and 60 magic cards, no two games will be quite the same. 
And finally, there's Everfields, the board game. The Kickstarter success of Everfields puts almost all its peers to shame. At the time of writing, with five days left to go and the goal of £40,000, there have been over 27,000 backers, generating almost £2.7 million. It's easy to see why. Created by the miniature painting studio Welcomed Realms, it promises a new type of board game experience that can be played co-op or solo, with one to four players. As a dream crawler, players develop a character from scratch using advanced deck building, then dive into a surreal and artistically crafted world where anything they do changes the rhythm of other fields, a world where even the strangest fantasy is possible. The player's body is a dream state. Memories faded away, they find different masks lying nearby. Each mask provides a different story. Memory chests provide players skills, and throughout the game, these chests are modified with new cards that provide skills as well as curses. Normal rules don't exist in the dream realm, and no rules are unbreakable. Each interaction leaves its mark and offers surprising results. You've got to think unconventionally. Fighting is an option, but often has unexpected consequences. In dreams, someone you've killed could come back angrier and weirder. Instead, you might cheat or find other ways to overcome the challenges of this strange realm. The gameplay has been created by the legendary Michal Oryx, author of This War of Mine, the board game, Nurashima Hex and Cry Havoc and tests the player's intuition, emotional intelligence, logic, and deductive reasoning. Stretch goals have introduced new monsters, custom dice, a better box, and more models. Given their background in miniature painting, you can expect the models to be something really special. They have a level of detail I haven't seen before. The artwork promises to be fresh, unique, and evocative. The game is expected to ship next March, and it's got to be one of the most promising board games of recent times. Thank you for listening to Parallel Worlds Issue 1. This issue featured articles written by Alan Stroud, Ant Jones, Ben Potts, Christopher Jarvis, Connor Eddles, Louis Calvert, Richard Watson, Thomas Turnbull Ross and Tom Grundy, and was edited by Alan Stroud and Tom Grundy. This audio edition featured the voices of Jamie Sugar, Kareem Cromfley, Peter Wotherspoon and Tom Grundy, and was edited by Ashley Devine, Christopher Jarvis and Peter Wotherspoon. Music was composed and performed by Dustin Midnight Driscoll. We would like to thank our Patreon subscribers for their continued support. For copies of back issues of our magazine and podcasts, visit our website at www.parallelworlds.uk. Thank you.